My guest today is Ganto. Ganto is a software engineer turned marketer who is a strong proponent of the engineering approach to marketing. He spent seven years at Auth0 where he led marketing and helped grow the company to nine figures before its sale to Okta for 6.5 billion. Ganto is now running his own company as co-founder of Hyper Growth Partners, a sweat equity advisor that invests time and knowledge into startups to help them achieve hyper growth. Ganto, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan, for inviting. Awesome to have you here. I have looked forward to this conversation for a while. It's been a while since you and I have last chatted, and uh, some people, some people who listen to this show, know that I worked at Zero, and uh, perhaps they didn't know though that I worked uh, under your management. Your you were my boss for a long time. You brought you actually brought me into the company initially, and you um, you were kind of the the reason that I'm in the tech industry now in a lot of ways because uh, that was my foray into tech was was at Zero. So uh, I guess all that to say a, a big thank you out of the gate uh, for for bringing me into the fold at Osero and I had an awesome time there. Really cool to see that it's culminated now in what is an, uh, a massive sale to Okta. So hoping that we can chat about lots of that stuff, what you're up to now and uh, and all that. Um, Happy so, to do it. And yep. thanks for the kind words. Always good to have an impact on people if you can. Awesome. Yes, I, I, I very much appreciate it. So um, yeah, why don't we talk about sort of your background a little bit before we get over to uh, Osero and hypergrowth, etc. Um, you're a software engineer kind of uh, as a background. And uh, this is something that I, I wasn't too sure about. Like, did you go to school? Uh, did you do university studies or anything for like computer science? I did. I did uh, systems engineering. Um, I actually started coding when I was 12, because my uncle was also a systems engineer. And I was coding uh, I feel a bit ashamed now, but it was Visual Basic 6, and I was coding an <laughs> online game that was called Argentum Online, which is like a, a MMORPG from Argentina that was for some reason done in Visual Basic. But I did study systems engineering and then worked as a programmer and coder, maybe for eight or nine years of my career. I did like uh, engineering, engineering manager, and then I was like a tech lead and, uh, in, in a couple of projects. Um, and then when I always say that I moved to the dark side is when I actually, I started building, um, open source projects and we actually met because of that. Like I had built mm -hmm. Restangular and other AngularJS projects. We met on some of the Angular conferences. And for me, it was clear that it was more fun to make the repositories popular rather than building it them myself. And that's when I started to go more to the darker, uh, marketing side. Right, right, very cool. Yeah, the rest angular days and, and the angular days in general, the, those were definitely my formative days. And uh, it was it was certainly cool to come across your work. I, I think I'd come across your work on rest angular well before we, we ever met at a conference. So it was neat to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it was neat to, to tie all that together when we actually did did meet and then ultimately uh, work together at Auth0. Um, so cool. So you, you worked on, you know, you did studies in, in uh, systems engineering, you uh, built lots of stuff in the open source world. Um, getting over to marketing and focusing on that, um, I mean, tell me about that shift. Like, was was it a, a huge mindset shift for you? Did it feel pretty natural? I think it's um, it's it's perhaps more rare that you'll see like someone who is a very dedicated engineer completely switch over to focus like very heavily on marketing and kind of switch trajectories like that. Um, so, did that? I mean, was there uh, much heartache that came with that? Was it something that took a lot of uh, a lot of time to think through? Or tell me about that process. I don't think it actually took any time. It was more like it kind of happened. So I remember, for example, I was an engineer, was doing open source. I actually had like a early life crisis, I would say, with my ex-girlfriend ending the relationship with me. And I was like, fuck this shit. I don't want to code 
all my day, like all day long anytime. And there was a guy that I followed, his name was James Ward. Um, mm -hmm. He worked at TypeSafe, and I think now he's at Salesforce, as I did another role. So I looked him up on Twitter, I looked him up on LinkedIn, and I saw that he was like a developer evangelist back then. Now I think evangelist is a bad word, and you have to say advocacy or relations. But he was <laughs> a developer evangelist um, back then. I didn't know what it was. I looked online, I found a book from Chris Hellman, um, and the book was about what a developer evangelist is. So mm -hmm. I read it all the night, um, and I was like, this is what I want to do. I had just actually started interviewing with Outzero um, back, back then for a engineering manager position, actually. And after reading this, I actually had a call with Matias, the, the co-founder mm -hmm. and CTO. I was like, look, I read this thing about developer evangelists. This is what I want to do. If you're looking for one, I'm happy to join. If not, that's great. I'm going to do something else. Um, so he said they were looking, so I was a bit lucky um, on, on that sense. And I interviewed both there as well as Mozilla, actually. I, I ended up first like getting into Outzero and becoming a developer advocate, even though developer advocate, when there's like five people in the company, is a lot more than what a developer advocate does. I was like sales engineers in calls. I was writing the documentation. Um, I was writing all of the SDKs, doing the blog posts, doing the talks, but also like getting feedback from them, sending it a lot to the development team and sometimes actually building like the documentation side and building a lot of, of, of that. From there, it was interesting because like Outzero was focused on developers. So most of the people that were signing up were because of the stuff that at, back then I was doing in the beginning. It was like the blog post that I was writing or the talks that we were doing or the docs. So at that point, what happened was because most of the signups were being brought by me, the, C, but the CEO back then, John Gels, he asked me if I wanted to take a leap of faith and try to own self-service growth that was only mm -hmm. focused on developers. So I didn't see that as marketing. Like to me, that was, okay, it's continue doing what I'm doing, but maybe with a team still focused a lot on developers. Right. So I took a chance. Um, and then when I started to hire some people on the team, like uh, Diego Post or Tony and you actually to work as the like technical content engineers on, on the team. We also had people on growth. We had people on, on, on data back then. And then uh, as it started to work on the signups, um, I always say that maybe it's because I'm Argentinian, but I have like opinions on everything. They're probably wrong, but I have opinions on everything. So I started to have opinions on other things. And eventually um, we started to try some of those opinions and uh, the opinions were tried in an experimentation framework, meaning, okay, we're going to set a KPI, we're going to try it out. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, like we kill it. And thanks to that, um, everybody in the company back to, I think up to like 20 people we were all engineers. There was nobody else. So mm -hmm. they, because the CEO didn't want to hire non-engineers. So because they, they liked my approach to marketing in a sense that it was like experimentation engineering wise, mm -hmm. they told me like, Hey, do you want to try it for all? And I ended up trying it for all. But for me, it was more about applying engineering thinking and scientific method to mm -hmm. KPIs to drive a result which again, is not coding, but I did see it more as engineering. Eventually, um, I did come to the dark side and become like a full marketer, but it was like step by step. It's like when you start walking and you sure. do one step and one step doesn't make a difference, second one doesn't make a difference, but then once you've done 100 steps, it's like, holy shit, I'm doing something completely different. <laughs>
Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so it was it was gradual in some sense. And I, I think that's a really cool point about the iteration aspect of like your approach where uh, you, you test, uh, you, you you create an experiment, essentially something that you think is going to work. You put it out there, test it. And if it does, great. If not, you move on to the next thing. I think that's a, <clears throat> that's an approach that engineers are, are, are quite fond of just based on the fact that we iterate on on code that we write, etc. Um, what I wonder about is the, the, that approach um, Given that approach at all, like, were you, is that something that you, you picked up from stuff that you had learned and read about or, or, or whatnot? Or was that stuff that you just kind of conjured up and said, you know, this will probably work. This kind of experimentation mindset will likely work. Let's go try it. Cause I guess what, what I'm getting at is that it, it seems like almost like a kind of a bold move as something to try at, you know, a growing startup at an organization that's more than just a couple people at this point. Right. So I, I guess I wonder. Um, were you afraid that it wouldn't work? Were you afraid that it would be something that might flop? Or, or were you pretty confident that this is going to be something that's, uh, that's going to be a winner? I was definitely very scared, but not because of this. I was scared when I was giving first the chance to run all of self-service. And then I was scared when I was given the chance to run on marketing because I'm not a marketer and I have no fucking idea what that is. So it's like, <laughs> holy shit, like, what am I going to do? So I was in general very scared. I didn't... I hadn't read about the experimentation framework anywhere. I didn't even know what growth is or product-led growth is, which now everybody talks about. But back then, it wasn't really a thing. So for me, it was actually the only thing that I could think about where maybe it could work. So I didn't have a lot of faith, but to me, it was like, I know nothing about marketing. But what I know is that we need to triple revenue. And for that, we need to grow signups 30%. The only way that I know how to drive a metric up is what I learned in engineering school, which is applying scientific method and trying and trying and trying until something works. So mm -hmm. I hoped that that worked for this as well, but I didn't know. And I didn't know it made sense. Eventually now everybody talks about experimentation and failure. But back yeah. then it was, it was like eight years ago. Nobody talked about this um, at all. So it was more about like a leap of faith, I would yeah. say more than anything else and trusting on the engineering roots um, and how they were going to help me solve any problem. Like big believer that engineers are good at solving problems, like whatever they are. No, that's really cool. Um, it might be worthwhile to talk about some of those, uh, more spe more specifically talk about some of the experiments that were run. I mean, uh, a large part of what I came in to do, I guess you'd, you'd categorize this as an experiment, would be the the content marketing aspect that, that we were going after, right? So writing technical content, writing blog posts, tutorials, uh, whatever's you know the latest, greatest, hot in tech, uh, writing about that and trying to reach an audience that way. But what are some of the other um, stuff that was going on? What are some of the other things that was going on that were like, experiments would you say like some others for example that we did is like something that was interesting was when we talked a lot to developers and we did some research we saw some of the interesting um authentication open source project that they were that they were using um to basically implement it so one experiment that we did is look if they use that why don't we sponsor those projects so mm -hmm. we paid those projects like 400 500 a month and in exchange in the readme they would put hey if you don't want to implement it yourself go use outzero and that actually worked great because ads don't work for developers because they have okay. ad block. We tried it. That's another experiment. We tried it. It failed miserably. Like we did Twitter. It was like a disaster. We did Google ads and like a bot killed us. We lost like $200,000. But this oh, one at least, um, it did work. And it was like, okay, we're part of the flow from a developer on, on GitHub. The other two that I think that worked very well was one was around the, we when we talked to developers, they had very specific search needs. 
but any other company or application were not prioritizing them because they didn't have enough volume. For example, authenticate React with Active Directory because they need mm -hmm. to use Active Directory or something like that. So we ended up coming with the idea of actually creating a landing page generator that mm -hmm. basically mixed all of the possible frameworks or languages like uh, Ruby on Rails, Angular, React, Vanilla JavaScript, whatever, with ways that people can authenticate, Facebook, Twitter, Active Directory. And for each of them, it created a landing page. Each of those drove maybe 0.5 signups a month, but mm -hmm. we have 4,000. So if we have 4,000, yeah. it doesn't matter because that's still a big number. That was another example of one that, that really worked. And mm -hmm. one last one that I can mention that was really successful, it had to do with the content, is the guest author program where we were paying mm -hmm. um, people like 300, $400 per blog post, mm -hmm. um, and they were getting exposure because our blog was already popular at that point. But at the same time, those blog posts were driving revenue. So that revenue, we could use it to then pay again the blog post. And we even had like recently, I think like um, two or three people that joined the team joined after doing guest house or product post. Like they did some, they enjoyed the experience and then they ended up coming to the team. So it was also like a good way uh, to source and hire people for the team as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think uh, Osiro's guest author program is is very well respected within like this, I don't know, community of people who want to get paid authoring spots. Like it, if you look at the list of like who pays authors kind of thing, like Osiro is up there in terms of like the compensation amount, the kind of uh, the, you know, the respect that, that Osiro has as a, as a content platform. So yeah, kudos on, on building that up to such a great extent. Um, I wonder if we can talk about um, some of the the other stuff you're up to. So you, you've kind of, I guess, moved on from Osiro more or less. Um, it came, I suppose, as a bit of a surprise to me when I saw your announcement uh, that you, that you're leaving, only because like I figured maybe maybe you were a lifer at that point because you you had been there <laughs> since the the very beginning. I think you you told me you were employee number seven or something like that. Uh, so so very early, and um, that was before too the, the sale. And then once the sale came around, I was like, okay, I can I can see what's happening. What, what is happened you know Gonto must have known about the sale obviously so maybe he's decided to go on to, to do some other things uh, all that being said we Osiro has sold a great sale to to Okta 6.5 billion um, it's uh, you know in the process of being finalized and everything like that but you've moved on to hyper growth partners in the way that you've described it is uh, basically sweat equity uh, partnership for for startups so uh, tell us more about hyper growth what uh, what's it all about what does it do and uh, what how are you involved with it so something that, like, to me, the most interesting thing about Zero was about thinking about these experiments, thinking about these things to do, being creative, and then working with the team. And the team started to grow. I was doing less of that. Like, when I left, uh, the marketing team was 100 people, maybe. And my job wasn't to think about experiments or being creative. My job was talking to other executives, doing some stakeholder management, setting the vision for the team. But it was a bit less hands-on and like what I wanted to do. And that's where I have more of my, my passion. So the idea of hyper growth partners is to actually go back to that passion and help other companies achieve what Outsido did. So what we do is I partnered up with Guillaume Cavain. So G, he was the VP marketing at Segment um, and at Drift. And he's also an expert in like growth and product like growth. And what we're looking for is companies who have found product market fit and are now looking to do either a product-led growth or bottoms-up motion or a top-down motion as well together with that um, PLG motion. And we want to help them get from those 4 million to exponential growth, um, where they are like doubling revenue um, or tripling every revenue every year. So 
what we do on that sense is we get together with them and we do something similar to Outsido. We interview their customers, we interview their teams, we interview prospects, we help them craft a strategy of what could it be that they could try out and why. We help them set the KPIs for the teams and for the marketing team or the growth team. We help them think about the team and then set up an experimentation framework and experiments. That's the main thing, which is a very similar model of what both G and I have done um, at Outsido and, and Segment respectively. And the, the difference why it's called self sweat equity is because we do not take cash at all. The main idea is that if we're helping you grow, we want to make sure that we have skin in the game as well. So yep. we take equity in return. We take common stock similar to other um, employees for a mm -hmm. one or two years engagement, but it's a deep dive advisory. It's like two to five hours a week with mm -hmm. each company. So I'm taking like three to four companies um, in each cohort usually um, to, to, to help out. And we have other partners as well who are helping uh, companies as well. We're now a total of like six partners or something like that. Um, and it's a partnership in the sense that I take 51% of the equity of the companies that I help, but mm -hmm. the other 49% goes to a pool and we divide that pool similar to what a VC does. Uh, so we actually decrease the risk of which companies will succeed, which ones will not, because we, we don't know. Yep. Interesting. So that, that's a really interesting play. Like it, it's, uh, I mean, it's not it's not a VC firm because you're not you're not uh, managing money and, and investing money, but like you're investing knowledge, you're investing like uh, mental capital, if you will, right? Which is uh, arguably a very critical piece of the puzzle for for early stage startups, uh, those wanting to go through through explosive growth, etc. Tell me more about like the 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 way that like you you come to this point where you're, you're getting equity from these companies. Is it like a standard amount that you you ask for? Do you negotiate it like for each company, each deal that you're doing, or how do how do you do that? We negotiate it for each company, but we have like a spreadsheet actually helps us calculate it. So it's hmm. usually based on how much money have they raised so far, what is their current valuation, what growth have they had so far, what growth do we ambition that they can have in the future. What is the risk factor? And then how much do we charge per hour, hour? So then mm -hmm. based off of that, if I know I'm investing five hours, um, if I know I'm investing like five hours a week with them, I know this has been their growth. I know that in three years, this is the potential of where they could be. This is yeah. what I expect to get my hour at that point. So then how much should I charge for that? Sure. Um, so it depends a bit on that. I would say that the range, it depends on the stage, but it's between 0.3 to 1% of, of the company, depending on early, late stage um, yeah. and stuff like that. But it's common stock. And uh, there's two things that we always do. One is we say that we usually charge the same of what a director of marketing would charge at that stage of the company approximately right. um, as, a, as, as a comparison. And the other one is we have a three months cliff, meaning that if in the first three months they don't feel that they are getting value from us, they can basically let us go and we do mm -hmm. not get anything. So the, there's also like a trial period where we don't get equity um, until that point so that they can see that we are adding value to them. Yeah. Interesting. That's a that's a really cool model, something that I never would have uh, thought about before. Is, the, is this like a thing, I guess, in, in the, the tech world or I guess the business world in general where this kind of uh, engagement exists with with firms like yours or or is this is this something that's kind of like novel is this something that that's uh, unique i suppose in in let's say in silicon valley anyway it's not very common there are a few that are doing this one company 
Um, it's called sweatequity.com actually, but they focus more, it's like more of a generalist and they help the founders um, and they help a bit more with messaging, not as much with product-led growth. Another example is like Reforge Partners, for example. Um, they also help with product-led growth, but they help pre-seed or seed companies. We help like CDSA usually and a bit above based on the ARR, but I don't know more than the three of us hmm. doing this. So it's not that many at least. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, one thing you mentioned is like you look for companies where, or at least part of your calculation is is the growth trajectory of a company, at least as far as you can see it at the time you're crunching the numbers. Um, what do you look for, or or what are some indications, I suppose, that a company would be on a good growth trajectory? Let's say if you come in and help them, that they could it could really be a rocket ship. Like, what are those kinds of indicators that you look for? So something that we look for is like, because we find a lot of companies that have found product market fit, something that's important is that the founder has been able to sell deals by themselves. So they are able to get customers on board at a good rate, but it's the founder who is selling to them and giving them message and it doesn't take them as much time or as many meetings, let's say, to, to convert. So it's more about that than the specific growth, um, I would say, because what we look is they need to understand who is the persona that they are targeting. They need to understand approximately what are the things that they have said that work, but they have done that at not scale, meaning it's a founder doing it or it's one person doing it. And what we help is like, look, now that you know that and you have the product market fit, we'll help you scale that with experiments um, that work at scale with multiple people at the same time, both from a top down at the bottoms up perspective. But we want to make sure that they're gonna, they are not going to pivot the product a lot at that point. They're not going to pivot who they sell to a lot at that point, because if they do, then the scale part makes no sense. Right. Do you come up across, I mean, in, you've been at this uh, for for not super long now, but uh, in your engagements that you have done, do you come up a, a, across like resistance to these suggestions at all? Like, are, do, you, do you, I just wonder if like, you know, because engineers can be op opinionated, founders can be opinionated in the, the things that they think should work, etc. Um, do you get resistance to your ideas? Because some of them might be unconventional in some ways. Um, I just wonder if if you have to if there's almost like a fight that has to happen to to convince people that you know this is what you should try. Sometimes yes, but what I do usually is like there's there's a lot of meetings that we do in the beginning before closing mm -hmm. a deal where they get to know me, they get to know like what are my advices and why, and I get to know them as well. And there's actually something that I always try to do in some of these meetings, which is I listen to something that they do. And that I completely disagree. There's always something that I disagree. Yeah. And I just say, I have something controversial to say. And then I give them my opinion. Mm -hmm. I, I see how they react. There's been companies that reacted like, no, what are you talking about? And if, if that's the reaction, I'm not going to take them because it's not going to work out. There's others who are like, yeah, some people have been thinking about that. Some others don't. Like, we are on the fence, but it's not controversial at all. Like, I've heard that a lot of times. When I hear that, that means that they have a growth mindset and they are open for feedback. So I do actually try to test that a lot when I'm meeting with people, um, trying to see if it's a good fit for both of us. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good litmus test. Um, so, you know, a lot of people that listen to this podcast, they'd be kind of uh, indie hacker types, bootstrappers, people that are um, have got a side hustle. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're advising on and, and certainly your most recent experience at Auth0, it's uh, at, at large scale, um, getting into big, big numbers with large teams and stuff like that. But I wonder if there are any 
um, particular things that you can take from your experience there and distill down for the bootstrapper types, kind of the indie hacker types that are maybe critical things, key things to focus on uh, in their marketing journey early on? You know, is it content? Is it uh, kind of like one-on-one -on -one conversations with users? Anything that you uh, might suggest for for those types that, that are, are you know, maybe even just in the midst of getting going uh, right now? I have maybe three things to share. One is I'm a big fan of doing qualitative interviews to potential prospects. They, couple of things, they have to not be customers and they have to be your like target persona. So for Outzero, the target persona was developers. We did a lot of interviews in back then in the beginning with developers and the interviews, it's like, I'm gonna offer you like 50 bucks for half an hour of your time. I'm not gonna sell you the product. I'm not going to talk to you about the, your, the product. I want to understand more about like what you learn, how and what are your habits. And the questions were more around the, when do you want to learn about authentication? How do you learn about it? Do you talk to other people? Do you read blog posts? Do you go to a conference? What apps do you use in your mobile phone? What apps do you use in your computer? Why do you use them? When? And I think that that's the way that then you can craft a good strategy. I've seen a lot of people who come and like, no, you must do content if it's developers. No, hmm. you must do ads if it's this. And I, I don't think that that works at all because it depends. Like in our case, why we started with blog is one simple answer that eight out of 10 people sell when we interviewed, which is, I don't want to learn about authentication. I don't give a shit. It's very boring. When I search about authentication is when I, I, I was asked to implement it and I got stuck. So then I search about it. So if you remember about it, like most of our first posts, like how to blog posts, how yeah. to do it, reacting uh, uh, authentication, Angular authentication and stuff like that. And it all came from that insight. Similarly, GitHub, we did Twitter ads because developers were blocking other ads, but it all came from a lot of these interviews. And I think that that's always a recommendation that I give. It's like, it's not one, there's not a silver bullet. You need to talk to your potential prospects and future customer base and see what they would do. That's one. Second one is set up metrics systems. Like uh, hmm. you need to be able to measure. And even if you don't have time now to like, or you don't have traffic now to measure what it is, to look at them, it doesn't matter because what matters is actually having the data of the past. Because when you start, when you have the time to start measuring and you start now, it's too late to have information from the past. So I would say like just something as simple as adding Google Analytics or segments hmm. and being able to detect the page views and some of the call to actions, like how many people click on sign up, how many people click on this, and some of the steps in the funnel, I think is another one um, that is really, really important. And then the third one is, I'm a big believer in activation metrics. A lot of people care about like signups, how many people are coming to your product, they're signing up or something like that. Activation is where most people follow up. Activation is about how can you get people to get to this aha moment of like, oh, wow, this is what mm -hmm. it did. And it's related to the onboarding. Like, how do you onboard people? How do you help them um, slowly learn more about the product and then start using it? But I think that defining an aha moment metric and then driving to that metric through an onboarding um, is key. A good mm -hmm. example for this is Facebook. So Facebook, for example, had a setup metric called seven friends in five days. Why did they have that? Because the aha moment for Facebook back then was 
holy shit. Like I go to the newsfeed, I scroll and I see the pictures of my friends or I see their status and what they are doing um, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And how did you get to that? You needed to have seven friends in five days to be able to actually see some pictures or see something from your friends. And for them, that was the main metric. That was only thing that they cared about in the mm -hmm. first week. They had five days to find seven friends and two days for them to scroll, do the newsfeed and get to the, that aha moment metric, which is scrolling on the newsfeed. And that is what was, was what was transformational for Facebook. I think that's transformational for um, all companies as well. And you have to think about that aha moment metric. Yeah. If I re recall correctly, at Osir, the aha moment was when you created... It was either when you created a tenant or you created an app within a tenant. Do you remember what it was? I can't remember specifically. Yeah, the aha moment was when you had the first active user. So it was the first user ah. that was logging in through your application that you had had the, the SDK. And for mm -hmm. us, the setup moment was having them create the application. Um, hmm. So we needed them to get to create the application before they could actually do that. Right, gotcha. So I suppose like when you're building up, you know, a new company, a new product, maybe it's not so clear what that aha moment would be out of the gate. Uh, anything you'd recommend in terms of like how to make an educated guess about that? Or is it just so contextual that there's not really a good way to it has to you have to just like think and think and think about it kind of thing? I think it's interviewing. Like we always hmm. started what I would say with interviews. Like when was the moment where like, holy shit, like this is so cool. And a lot of people were telling us when magically I got the user to log in or when I got the JSON web token and I could see it and it was there. Um, others were saying other things, for example. But what, once you have some quantitative data, what you need to think about is since you have quantitative data because you've been saving it, you can start looking at correlation. So then what you do is, okay, how can I measure that they got the token? Well, it's because they logged in. How can we measure if they logged in brings is useful? So you need to check retention. So we do a correlation of the people who have found who have had like a user login through their apps in the first week. How many of them are still using the app four months ago? I don't know, 55%. Mm -hmm. Let's compare that to this other metric. What happens if they, another one that they had mentioned was using the management API. How many people who have used the management API five months later are still retained? 20%. Well, that's less informative than the other. So I think that doing qualitative testing, doing qualitative interviews first, looking at what is the quantitative metric that represents that and then doing correlation between that and retention is the best way to actually find what is that aha moment metric. Very cool. Um, so, you know, Osiro, uh, a company that solves a very painful problem for people. They don't want to think about authentication. You know, it's just, it's boring, like you said, uh, that you found out in interviews, you know, people just, they, they'd rather offload this. I'm one of those people. I definitely offload <laughs> the authentication <laughs> needs for my applications to none other than Osiro uh, as we go on even to today. Um, but uh, not all problems are so painful uh, as that. And, and one thing that I always think about and, and that I talk to other kind of bootstrappers about is that it's hard to tell if a problem is of the pain type that might make for a good product or a good company if you were to solve that pain, right? I wonder from your experience so far with hypergrowth and the various companies you're seeing, have you found any patterns or any kind of ways uh, that people can maybe any frameworks for ways that people can think about looking for painful problems and sort of reasoning about whether it is something that is worthwhile to solve with a product. Any thoughts on that? I have two ideas on this, like uh, that we've done. One is regarding like if this product doesn't yet exist, maybe what you could do is like again talking to people first. But you talk to people and to see if it's a it's a real pain or if it's valuable. 
you need to make sure to ask from the person that you're interviewing that they give you something from them to see how worth it is. So for example, I, I tell you about like a product and I'm like, yeah, that product is like really cool. I would use it. And then I'm like, okay, I need to do a user testing session for four hours. Could you come like someday next week? If they say no, then it's not really painful because they are not willing to pay the cost of four hours. If they say yes, then there is a real pain. But I think that people will always say that it's the most painful thing uh, mm -hmm. all the time, just because that's what they are thinking about now. And that's the only thing that they are concentrating. But when you ask them to pay either with time or with money or with something, that's when you really see if they care, because otherwise they will just say no. I think mm -hmm. that that's one of the most important ways before you build. After you build something, I like Paul Graham questions, which is like, how disappointed would you be if this product ceased to exist? Again, something people are uh, not honest about it or something like that. One test that was interesting that I saw a company did is like, let's actually bring the product down for two hours. Like <laughs> they just kill the product for like two hours or three hours or something like that. And then you see how many people complain. If nobody complains, they don't care. They don't mm -hmm. give a shit. If they do complain, then it's become important for them because otherwise they would not complain. Right. That's a that's an interesting test. Yeah. Maybe maybe one to only run a single time in the existence of the company it would be advisable, but but definitely an effective test nonetheless, I think. That's really cool. So, uh, you know, so that that's a lot of great info for bootstrappers, people getting started. Uh, there may be some people out there who are running um, growing companies that are starting to do really great things. They're hiring people, they're 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 growing, you know, really fast, etc. You've gone through this process where you have started with a very small team at Ocero and and then you've got to hire people and then teams have grown and then uh, management has shifted and you've moved to other positions, et cetera. Uh, anything that you would give in terms of advice for surviving that kind of perpetual growth cycle that happens at a fast growing startup where it's like things are changing all the time. You really just need to get used to, you know, putting on different, you got to put on different hats on different days, et cetera. Um, anything you'd recommend for people uh, as they're going through critical growth phases at their companies? The main thing to me is that growth and exponential growth is not for everybody. And it's okay if it's not for you. Like uh, what I say about exponential growth is that to me, it's a roller coaster of emotions. Like some days I'm like sad, other days I'm like fucking mad. Other days I'm like really happy because something worked or something like that. And that's your life day to day. And the second thing is that everything is constantly on fire and not working. And actually, I think the biggest thing that you have to know when you're doing exponential growth is which fires to put off right now and which ones to just let them burn, because mm -hmm. that's the way it is right now, because you don't have time and you'll deal with it in the future. And I think that if you don't, if you cannot live with that, then maybe like exponential growth or a startup is, is not for you. I personally enjoy it because of a personal reason, like uh, I'm a big fan of feeling emotions. Like when I feel an emotion, I feel that I'm alive. I don't, like most of the time we live in automatic mode. I don't enjoy mm -hmm. living in automatic mode. I feel when it's an emotion, whatever it is, I'm happy. So even if I'm sad like, and I'm crying, I don't care because at least I'm crying, I'm feeling something and eventually like any other emotion, it will go away. So I actually mm -hmm. feel on the emotions that I feel um, every day and I enjoy it a lot. But again, I, I don't think it's, it's up for everybody. And I think that a lot of people 
don't enjoy exponential growth and they stay on companies that are doing exponential growth because it's their company or it's their mm. responsibility. And the reality is that it's not. If you don't show it, you should leave. You did what you liked. You can do something else and you can still get like the outcome of whatever you built because you still keep, keep the equity uh, of what you built. But I think right. it's, it's letting go a bit of this guilt of I'm a founder. I created this. I need to add this much value or everything is wrong. And I, I don't mm. think that's, that's the way to think about it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely like a sunk cost fallacy that can creep up and, and convince you that, you know, you've got to stick around for things. Um, one thing I w I've wondered about is like, you know, Osero had a great uh, budget allocation for marketing that certainly grew over the course of time. And, you know, some organizations take that same approach where they, they have huge budgets for marketing. Others don't put so much don't put so much attention on marketing. I guess the question is this, do you think Osero would be at, where it's at today, having just sold for a big price tag, if there was not so much attention paid to marketing, right? If we didn't grow the content team initially, if we didn't do all these experiments, if we didn't kind of focus on various other kinds of marketing tactics, um, would it be a different outcome? What do, you, what, do you, what do you think? I do think it will be a different outcome. Like, I think when people say like, you build a great product and they will come, they don't come, like that doesn't work. Um, mm. I think distribution is key and we did a really good job of building a brand of developers. Like we, we, we cared about developers, we cared about their feedback and we wanted to make sure that they felt that we were adding value to them. That's a bit of what we did with, with marketing. So I do think like it would have been a different outcome. What I do think it's important, however, is to be able to prove the ROI of the budget, like marketing. Mm kept getting a bigger and bigger budget at Outsidio because we actually were counting how much revenue was coming from Outsidio, from marketing, sorry, from the blog or from demand gen or from all of it. And if right. you can prove the revenue that you got, of course they'll invest more because you're adding value to the company and it's it's easy to to show it. But I, I yeah, I, I don't think it would have been um, the same outcome at all. And you can see that that all or almost all developer companies that are doing well, they have had a huge marketing budget as well. Yeah. Um, Twilio is another good example, I think. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Digital Ocean comes to mind as well. Lots of focus on marketing, on content, etc. I suppose it goes both ways, right? Like if you had extensive marketing, but a crappy product, chances are your your marketing efforts are, are going to be kind of just pointless yeah, at some point, right? Um, so, so that's really cool. Agreed. Well, yeah, we should probably start wrapping up soon, but what I was hoping to talk about just before we do is angel investing. This is something that you mentioned that uh, is an interest to you. I mean, you're, you're investing uh, knowledge-wise into lots of companies these days, but uh, talk to me about your thoughts on angel investing. I think this is a topic of consideration for many more people, you know, throwing a couple thousand bucks at a company, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000, seeing what it does. Uh, tell me your thoughts. So I've, I've been a big fan of doing angel investing lately. The main reason why is like, and, and similar with hypergrowth partners, it's like I love meeting with founders and learning about new products. Like there's so much, so many things to do in the world, like so many new products, so many new ideas, so many great people to meet that I really enjoy learning about new products, learning about new new people and, and, and what they do. And I like the idea of angel investing because it allows me to, to do that. Um, I've been doing maybe 14, 15 investments a year. That's what I did in 2020, approximately. I did a couple of those in, in 2019. And I think it's it's also a way where I'm 
I'm showing as a strategic investor, and then I can also help them with go-to-market or with growth. So I stay involved with the company, which makes it more fun because then you can see how it's growing and uh, stuff like that. I would never invest in something that I don't understand. So I only invest in B2B, and I mostly invest in like developer tools or security or marketing technology, which are the three things that I mostly um, understand. But I think it's a great way to pay forward, get to help a bit, um, and just know other founders and, and learn about uh, new products. It's it's yeah. It's been a great experience. And you also get so many intros um, that, yeah, it's it's been fun. Awesome. That's really cool. Well, uh, that's awesome. I, I think this is going to be super useful for people who are, you know, either at early stages and, and want to grow or are at whatever intermediate stages and want to grow further. So um, we'll wrap up now. Where can people find you, though, and learn more about you and Hypergrowth? Where should we uh, point people towards? So you can come to my Twitter, which is mgonto. You can also follow me and increase my ego. You can also check out my website, which is gon.to. So gonto, but with the dot in the middle. And if you want to learn more about hypergrowth, it's hypergrowth.bc. For now, it's very scrappy. So it's a Notion page, but we're building the website right now. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, well, thank you so much, Gonto, for being on today. It's a pleasure to see you again. And I wish you all the best with hypergrowth and uh, wherever the future may take you. We'll, we'll chat with you soon. Thank you for inviting Ryan. Thank you so much for tuning into the Entrepreneurial Coder podcast today. This has been episode 45 with Ganto. You can find show notes, including all the links that Ganto mentioned at ecpodcast.io. There you can also subscribe. Head over to ecpodcast.io slash subscribe. And if you would like to support the podcast, it'd be awesome if you could leave a rating and review. Check us out on Twitter at twitter.com slash coderpodcast. Podcast.